Welcome to episode 7 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th and 28th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As ever, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are you doing? I'm great Brian, how are you holding up? Very well, thanks Mark. So, let's jazz it up a bit. Obviously we always do the news to start off with. So, what's caught your eye this week, Brian? There's a story from the Business Sprinkler Alliance, Mark. They've been focusing on what it refers to as the far-reaching ramifications of the Holt supermarket fire. Now, on Saturday the 20th of June, 100-plus firefighters tackled the substantial blaze at the Budgeon supermarket in Norfolk. The fire and rescue service prevented the fire from spreading to other buildings. But sadly, as many people would have seen on the news, the supermarket is beyond repair and will now have to be rebuilt in its entirety. The fire was so fierce, in fact, that the smoke could be seen billowing from 10 miles away. Eight fire crews and 14 appliances were called to the fire at its height and it eventually brought it under control. The building itself didn't require sprinklers to satisfy building regulations. It was just under the 2,000 square metres threshold for retail premises. But the Business Sprinkler Alliance asserted that there ought to be some degree of flexibility in the system to ensure that critical buildings such as these can also be effectively protected from fire. The business in actual fact had served the local community for 35 years and was also home to the town's only post office. It was conducting hundreds of deliveries for people who were self-isolating during COVID-19. And for budgets themselves as a supermarket, this event will now lead to loss of earnings, of course, along with business disruption. As we've already mentioned, the company's store in Holt will now have to be rebuilt and a temporary store erected in the meantime. And for their part, staff will need to be redeployed. You can compare and contrast this fire, in fact, Mark, with a bakery oven fire at the Sainsbury's store in Altrincham back in December 2018. That blaze had a very different outcome, with an automatic sprinkler system activating and extinguishing the fire prior to the arrival of the fire and rescue service. The Sainsbury's store actually reopened three hours after the fire started, with damage limited to just less than £500 in total. That figure is minuscule, Mark, in fact, when compared to the cost of rebuilding the budget supermarket, the loss of business incurred and the impact on the local community itself. So what's the key point to note in all of this? Well, whether it's through a greater ability to emphasise the criticality of a property by way of local powers or improved national regime, we do need to ensure that large and critical buildings are protected. The Holt Budgeons really is an almost perfect example of a building the community can ill afford to lose. Likewise, it could have been a school, a medical centre, a hospital or a sports centre. In each case, such loss can and does have a massive impact. From the Business Sprinkler Alliance's point of view here, a focus on property protection in the building regulations would mean that sprinklers could be installed in new buildings where there's the possibility of a large loss of fire, where firefighter safety is likely to be compromised, and where the loss of a building would impose significant negative impacts and costs on the local community. It's a fact that many businesses with sprinkler systems fitted suffer a minor interruption and find they're back up and running in a matter of hours after a fire. Those without can see five to six times the damage and suffer longer and costly spells of interruption. Well, Brian, there's a couple of key points that you raised there. Two things for me are that I don't know if everyone knows the statistics, but I believe it's two thirds of businesses that suffer a major fire just never start up again. It's total loss and that's the end of the business. But there was a statistic that you said there, um, which is absolutely key. And it's something that the British Sprinkler Alliance and Auto BAFSA um, have also come up with, which is that 2000 square meter threshold for where sprinklers need to be installed. So any facility in that section, the retail premises is 2000 square meters or above, sprinkler systems are needed. This was just beneath that threshold. And if this isn't 
once again another prime example of why that needs to be looked at something that BAFSA and BSA would massively agree on I don't know what is the devastating effect that's going to have on the local economy and the local community is you know as, as you said it's it's the only post office it's the main route for groceries etc in that area it, it has massive impact whether it's jobs and it is economy in general so this brings us back to the point that BAFSA and the BSA are correct you need to have a look at whether that threshold of 2,000 square metres needs to be reduced. So with that in mind, Brian, I want to talk about another story that you've written that I'd like to cover. And this is related to the Fire Brigade Union urging the government to make building safety a top priority in the new schools programme. Follows on nicely from what you just said, Brian, because schools play a key part of the local community. So the FBU has called on Boris Johnson to tackle what they call the very real fire risk in schools and ensure that both new and existing schools in England are fitted with vital fire safety features such as fire sprinkler systems. So again, follows on very nicely from what we've just said. The demand comes after the government announced a new £1.7 billion fund for the construction of 50 new schools and to repair some of the existing schools and colleges in the country. Currently a gap in fire safety guidance in England, which is the Building Bulletin 100, allows those who build schools to do so without carrying out a full risk assessment. According to the figures published by the Department of Education, this has resulted in just 105 sprinkler systems being fitted in 673 new schools built in England last year. By contrast, fire sprinklers are mandatory in new school buildings in both Scotland and Wales. In 2016, the government had attempted to, what the FBU say, further water down fire safety guidance, but back down following the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And the FBU goes on to say that the Department of Education has been stalling on carrying out a consultation to update this guidance. The FBU is obviously now urging the government to immediately make clear to those tasked with building new schools that risk assessments must be carried out as standard and that building contracts will not be awarded unless companies can confirm they'll do so. The government is also being urged to prioritise the retrofitting of sprinklers to already existing schools and also provide whatever funds are necessary to ensure that work in that nature can be completed. The FBU is adamant that this work should be completed within five years. So a natural segue for us there, Brian. Uh, you know, I, I'm a parent, I've got eight-year-old twins, and you just expect your children to be safe in school. When, when they're not in, you know, under your supervision, you just naturally assume they're going to be safe. But to read that horrifying statistic there, that only 105 spring systems have been fit in 673 new build schools last year, and so many are not carrying out a full risk assessment on that. It's a truly staggering and worrying statistic, and I've got to say, I agree with the FBU on this. It is indeed a worrying statistic, Mark, and many of our readers of Fire Safety Matters will remember the Harrington Junior School fire in Derbyshire. That school was destroyed by a fire in May this year. It later emerged that the school didn't have sprinklers fitted, making it the latest in a long line of schools to be completely destroyed by a fire episode. The most recent government figures actually show there were almost 600 fires in schools in the year 2018-2019, with over 7,000 fire episodes across the last decade in total. Now, interestingly, Mark, uh, Zurich Insurance have reported that large school fires can cost between £3 million and £20 million per episode of fire outbreak, a substantial sum of money. Key advocates for high standards of regulation, such as the Fire Sector Federation, have been campaigning for many years to make schools safer. The all-party parliamentary group for fire safety and rescue again wrote to the Education Secretary only last month, in fact, to raise urgent concerns about the lack of progress in automatic sprinkler fitting in schools. This is pretty obviously an area of huge concern for our sector, Mark. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this feels like the perfect segue to our main guest on this episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Who have you got as the main guest today, Brian? Our first guest on this episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Dennis Davis, Executive Officer at the Fire Sector Federation. Dennis is a fire engineer by background and boasts a master's degree in fire service management. He has served as president of the International Institution of Fire Service Engineers and the Chief Fire Officers Association and is the proud recipient of both an OBE and a CBE from Her Majesty the Queen. Dennis was also presented with the Queen's Fire Service Medal back in 1989. I spoke with Dennis about a number of issues, among them the Fire Safety Bill, Approved Document B and competency in the fire industry. First though we focused on the ongoing and vital role of the Fire Sector Federation itself. Could you outline the basic aims of the Fire Sector Federation, please? Yeah, Brian, the, the Federation really seeks to give a uh, voice to good guidance on fire safety and tries to advocate a, a strategic view to government about where the industry generally is. And as such, it, it tries to become a resource and a go-to sort of signpost expert on protecting the public safety across a spectrum of interests. So... From that point of view, uh, we're simply trying to meet the clear aim of our organisation, which is to improve fire safety in the UK. And what areas did the Federation cover in terms of its written submission towards the content of the much-discussed fire safety bill? Well, the bill was interesting in the, in the context that when it first came through, uh, the three areas of clarity that were being sought, one we had no, and I don't think many people had any problem with, and that was the, common, the, door, the fire doors in common areas. The second area was was anticipated, you could say, and that's external walls and cladding systems in particular. Um, and the third that did sort of throw people slightly was, was structure. But I think our submission on those three areas, fire doors in common areas, uh, external walls and structure, the, the main issue for us was clarity. Um, external walls, as you know, and anybody in the industry knows, is quite, is quite a big thing when you start to get into the detail of it. Um, you assume that you're following something like the MH, the, the housing uh, guidance, the MHCL guidance, but that's not stated explicitly. So you have to you have to try and work your way through that. And what, one of the things we were saying, therefore, is the guidance and all the rest of it will have to be very accurate uh, so that people know what we're talking about. Same goes a little bit with structure. In structure, the big issue uh, is, what, well, what exactly do you mean? Beams, walls, you know, ceilings, they all have structural elements. Are you talking to being intrusive? I mean, exactly where are you going with this? So a large part of our submission um, really was around clarity of the definitions. And that meant that the guidance needed to be either statutory guidance or updated guidance so that there was no confusion. On top of that, we made a... a quite a, a substantial comment about the capacity and capabilities of fire risk assessors um, because the impact study, I don't know whether you know, Brian, or whether you saw it, the impact study said that, you know, over a, a million and a half, 1.6 million dwellings would be affected by this. And from that point of view, that's a substantial amount of revisiting of existing fire risk assessment. In your view, Dennis, what changes, if any, need to be considered for approved document B? Well, this is quite a substantial document, isn't it, in the sense that we've we've all been working our way along, particularly around blocks of flats and 
the arguments about trigger heights, you know, 30 metres, 11 metres. Um, and then the, the consultation added to that wayfinding and evacuation alerts. And we, we were quite positive about most of that, with, with, without doubt. But one of the things that worries us as a federation is you, it's so easy to lose sight of what it is you're actually trying to do. And what I mean by that is the building regulations and, and the approved documents in particular are trying to give you a holistic view of risk, fire risk on buildings. And, and to do that, you really need to think about how these materials, systems, methods and competency all come together. And, and you could easily get sidetracked simply by a height, you know, and, and people obviously realise that you can be a half a metre under the height and it's almost, well, this doesn't apply to me. When in reality, our, our view has always been that this is a package, this is a, an issue where things like, as I say, looking at the whole scope of what you're trying to do to minimise the risk drives then how you look at the constructional areas and the, the process of mitigation through protective systems. So our response to ADB has been very much along those sorts of lines. And we, we're quite supportive now that having seen the technical review outlined, um, it really does start to show the sort of areas that we, we're interested in from you know, looking across the spectrum over the short, medium and longer term. And, and that, I don't think, um, can be bad at all. You know, I mean, as long as we don't sidetrack ourselves on trigger heights and all that sort of stuff. I mean, a trigger height is a, I've come back to it because really it's a good illustration of how easy it is to just get lost as to what it is you're trying to do, which is to lower the risk from fire to a building. And of course, the life risk element of that is one thing, but a lot of people these days are very concerned about business continuity and, and how the resilience of the building itself will exert influence going forward. And I think in economic times, like we're about to face difficult ones, that sort of consideration needs thought. And is the Fire Sector Federation actively focusing on raising awareness about the need for competency in relation to fire safety work, Dennis? Well, well, Brian, I think this has probably been one of our drives. Over, over two years now, we've been, we've been pushing extremely hard for third-party certification and validations of competencies. I mean, for us, it isn't just a product thing, it's a person thing. I mean, it, it's absolutely no point in having a, an installation to the highest specification where it's certified to do its job, and then somebody who fits it or installs it or whatever hasn't done it properly, or worse still, someone comes along and actually destroys what is a perfectly viable, say, compartment wall by poor workmanship, simply because they are, they are incompetent and don't realise it. I mean, the first call on competency is to know what you're not competent at, uh, and to stop and ask and, and, and get help for that. So yes, I mean, our drive on competency has been strong. The the Federation, I don't know whether you know, but it, the, the competency steering group that's been looking at this since Dame Judith published her report is coming to its its final report this year. And in fact, it might be out at the end of this month or close thereafter. And within that, there are 13 working groups. And within those 13 working groups, the Federation is represented on most of them and leads two of them. And the two it leads, I think, illustrate our concern. One is fire risk assessment and the other is installers. And those two groups of people um, 
are incredibly important to safe safeguarding our buildings and uh, the competency of those people is therefore very important. And for example, just going back to third party certificated uh, standards, we would argue that anybody working on a high rise uh, residential building must have that competency level before they're allowed to work on those higher end risk buildings. Um, and we would, we would drive for that very hard. And a lot of people in our industry, in the Federation, are working incredibly hard to try and get the standards raised and in place. And we asked at one stage for a mandatory requirement to be incorporated in the new, what will be the Building Safety Bill. Uh, I doubt if it'll be there, but we would have very much like to have seen that as a mandate. So yes, competency for us is incredibly important. I understand, Dennis, the Federation recently created some planning guidance for successfully emerging from the COVID-19 crisis. Could you elaborate on this a little and tell the readers of Fire Safety Matters where this advice can be accessed? Well, the advice is available, first of all, on our website, which if anybody wants to look up the firesectorfederation.co.uk, they'll find. The guidance was given as a way of trying to assist practically where, when we were looking at how we come out of the uh, of the COVID situation. I'm pleased to say a lot of our businesses now are back at work and have been work. Some of them have worked right through doing some of those fire risk assessments I mentioned and maintaining fire alarm systems and, and extinguisher systems. So a lot of them have been working through, but the guidance is very practical. It's given from two perspectives. The first is really aimed at trying to get the workplaces going and the workplace, of course, can be remote. And the second is, is a series of management guide considerations to help people at a management level try and get their business re-stabilised, financially viable, so that going forward it, it, it can grow from strength to strength. In addition to that, we've added guidance that other people have provided to us. I remember, for example, the AXA Insurance Company did some excellent uh, work, and so that's available uh, to members. But there's a lot of guidance on our website generally that's aimed at assisting. For example, um, we gave guidance on how to conduct fire drills for those who are trying to do this in a socially distanced way. So there's a lot of practical things there that I hope are of benefit to people. So back to the news now, Brian. I'd like to start off with a big news story that, that you wrote, and this was the National Fire Chiefs Council calling for clear answers on cladding from the Grenfell Tire Inquiry. So the NFCC, which is the National Fire Chiefs Council, has called for the Grenfell Tire Inquiry to get to the truth about why such dangerous cladding came to be installed on the building and to ensure that those responsible are held to account. So for those that haven't quite kept up to date with the Grenfell Inquiry, which is chaired by Sir Martin Warbick, the evidence so far presented in the inquiry includes the following, that decisions taken to use ACM cladding made savings in the region of £450,000 when it was installed. Fire engineers were excluded from communications about the details of the cladding. And also there was an external email where an executive admitted to a distributor that it was clearly wrong to think that it was okay to use combustible insulation on buildings of any height. The emails also show the distributors of the cladding 
stated they would only use non-combustible cladding if they were specifically challenged. In April 2016, while works on Grenfell Tower were ongoing, cladding manufacturer was sent guidance stating that the UK building regulations required all significant elements of each and every layer of the wall to be non-combustible or of limited combustibility. So NFCC Chair Roy Wilshire stated that it's imperative we find out why a non-compliant, extremely dangerous cladding system was used on Glenfell Tower, along with hundreds of other buildings across the country. The bereaved survivors and family deserve answers, and I truly hope they will find the answers they need from the phase two of this inquiry. The first phase of the Grenfell Tower inquiry, Brian, found that the cladding system was the principal reason for the, why the rapid and profoundly shocking spread of fire throughout the building. The second phase now concentrates on how and why the building was clad in a flammable material during its refurbishment. Back in February, the NFCC expressed shock following the opening evidence given to the second phase of the Grenfell inquiry, including emails, as I said earlier, which suggested companies knew about the components of the cladding systems would fail in the event of fire. At the time, when they heard this, NFCC stated the evidence undoubtedly shows a clear lack of concern for fire safety and a blatant disregard for people. It made clear manufacturers and distributors were fully aware of the flammability of the cladding. The disregard for safety undoubtedly contributed to a loss of life at Grenfell Tower. So this is a really important stage we're now moving into phase two of the Grenfell Tower inquiry, Brian. So I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, the National Fire Chiefs Council has repeatedly stated, Mark, that it's wholly unacceptable people are still living in dangerously clad buildings. Uh, Mark Hardingham, who's the chair of the NFCC's Protection and Business Safety Committee, has stated, and I quote, it's only through better legislation, regulation and clear lines of responsibility that we can ensure we don't see another tragedy of this scale unfold. The Grenfell Tower fire highlighted beyond doubt that the building safety regime was broken, yet three years later, tens of thousands of people are still living in buildings clad in the same or similar materials as that on Grenfell Tower. Now, the readers of Fire Safety Matters may well remember that earlier this year, the NFCC welcomed the decision from the Attorney General not to grant any individual or corporate entity involved in the refurbishment of Grenfell Tower immunity from future criminal prosecutions. Witnesses from phase one of the Grenfell Tower inquiry didn't make such a request and gave unfettered, open and honest disclosure surrounding the tragic fire. I've got one more story I'd like to focus on uh, this time around, Mark. It's to do with the firefighters charity. The charity has launched an urgent appeal for new donors in the wake of news that its usual fundraising income has actually dropped by around £200,000 per month during the coronavirus lockdown period. Now, this is an excellent charity and it offers specialist mental health, physical health and social well-being support to members of the UK's fire services community. It receives no government funding, in fact, whatsoever, and is entirely reliant upon its own fundraising income to generate the £10 million it needs every year to operate its national services. Those services are actually in support of over 55,000 members of the UK's fire and rescue services and the dependents, as well as the retired fire services community. The cancellation of all face-to-face -face fundraising and mass participation events over the past few months, and it would seem for much of the rest of 2020, means that the organisation's income is falling short by hundreds of thousands of pounds each month, Mark. Uh, the CEO of the charity, Dr Jill Tolfrey, has referred to this recent period as being an unprecedented time for the charity. It's never before faced such an extended period without any traditional fundraising activity, in fact. Now, for an organisation that's almost entirely funded through the generosity of its supporters, it needs to find a way of turning this situation around. The charity has actually launched a video uh, which can be found on the Vimeo platform. It's also created an appeal page on its website. This can be found online at www.firefighterscharity, all one word, 
www.donate.org.uk forward slash appeal. Now supporters are asked to set up a new regular donation to uplift an existing one or if not possible to consider other ways in which they can help the charity through these challenging times. Now from my point of view Mark, Fire Safety Matters is 100% supportive of the charity and we would urge all of our readers to help where and when they can. Well, I've been to events where the Firefighters Charity have been the charity of trust. They do a fantastic job. You know, they they cover a wide range of support from mental health firefighters to physical recovery from injury on the job or illness and also social well-being as well. It's a very, very dangerous job that firefighters do. And it's, it's a fantastic profession, but one where their lives really are at risk every time they go into a burning building and they're there to save us. So they've got my utmost respect and I used to work on the fire service college so I'd see all of them get training so that's how I kind of came into contact or to find out more about the firefighters charity so they really do help and right now money's tight for everybody it's charities across the country are finding increasingly hard in this economic situation caused by the COVID-19 pandemic but it's a fantastic fantastic charity so if you can help please do. And as Brian said, the website to help is www.firefighterscharity.org.uk forward slash appeal if you want to go to the appeal part. So that's the news for this section of the podcast. And now we have a regular guest who is Warren Spencer. Warren is Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors in Blackpool. Warren has actually been part of more prosecutions under the fire safety order than anybody else across the United Kingdom. And I sat down with Warren earlier to talk about a new service that he's able to help you with. And that is all to do with how to limit your liability under the fire safety order. We also catch up on how fire safety inspectors, the fire and rescue service are now starting to move cases forward again into the criminal court system. So I sat down with Warren earlier and here's what he had to say. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Mark. Good morning to you. So, I want to talk about a new service that your firm, Blackhurst Bud, has launched today, which I think will be real interest to our readers and our listeners. So, you've launched a new service which is aimed at limiting liability under the fire safety order. Can you tell us a bit more about this, what it entails? Yeah, that, that's the marketing spin, is limiting liability under the fire safety order. Uh, as is clear, you, you can't um, disclaim criminal liability or civil liability in certain circumstances, if you're liable for a breach of the order, you're liable for a breach of the order. But what you can do is limit your obligations in respect of the order, uh, and the order allows you to do that. And what I find and my experience has been, certainly uh, in prosecutions and defending over the last few years, is that there is an absence of legal documentation which accurately outlines people's obligations in respect of fire safety for premises, which leaves everybody open to culpability under the fire safety order. So what I'm trying to do is educate and tell those in the fire safety industry that you can control your remit and you can control your obligations and your retainer by having the appropriate documentation in place. And, and then both or all parties involved in any kind of project or premises own their own responsibilities and know where they are in respect of those, the management of those responsibilities. Now, this is something you just announced last week, but I believe there's already been quite good feedback. You've had inquiries already on this. Well, actually, we've been doing it from the start of the year um, as a, a result of lectures I did two years ago, and then I did some more last year. Uh, just, just drilling this point home that people can have control 
over the extent of their obligations in respect of premises. And uh, so we've actually been doing it probably six to nine months. Um, and we wanted to find our way with that to see what kind of help we could provide. And now we're clear on that. And um, yeah, even over the weekend, I think this was sent out to my group on LinkedIn on either Friday or Saturday. And, and uh, we've had a number of inquiries over the weekend already. Now, one of the things we talked a couple of weeks ago about was was workflow for you as a business and how fire safety inspectors were based from home and, and it was slow getting stuff back into court because obviously criminal courts are focusing more on criminal cases right now rather than fire safety law cases. But when we were talking off air a minute ago, you said there's actually been a bit more movement in that in recent weeks. Yes, it, 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 it's, it's bizarre how things, you try to predict how work will come in. Um, for example, you would have thought after Grenfell there would be an influx of work when in fact it went quiet for a year because uh, fire officers were looking at cladding on buildings for a year and, and, and making sure people were safe and, and that meant that there were, was not as much time spent on preparing cases for enforcement or prosecution. Actually, we've just now had three or four months where fire officers have not been able to go into buildings and do inspections and have been able to sit and deal with enforcement cases and prosecution cases and um, I've seen a massive influx of cases in the last uh, two or three weeks which obviously, as we spoke about last time, might not get dealt with by the courts immediately, um, but there are going to be quite a few queuing up to be dealt with by the courts. So usual way that we end this, Warren, because we always appreciate your time. If people want to find out more information about the new service that you've just talked about or to get in touch with you directly, how should they do so? It's on the website, firesafetylaw.co.uk. We've, we've got a, an article there about what, what, in fact, we're doing. So have a look at that. At the bottom of that article, there is... Um, my direct email address available on LinkedIn, as always, uh, the occasional uh, tweets on Twitter. Um, and of course, blackhurstbud.co.uk is the website of our practice, if we can help in any other way. Brilliant. Thanks, Warren. Always great to speak to you. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Mark. guest this time around is Andy Scott, founder and director at life safety systems manufacturer SeaTech. SeaTech is the UK's largest independent developer of such systems. Established back in 1981 and currently trading in over 70 countries worldwide, the business's commitment to quality is underlined by the ISO 9001 accreditation held by the company since 1994. Andy holds a BSc degree in electronic engineering from Loughborough University and importantly is chair of the British Standards Institution Committee responsible for UK standards focused on fire alarm devices, voice alarm evacuation systems and emergency voice communications. Mark chatted with Andy about BS 8629, the code of practice for the design, installation, commissioning and maintenance of evacuation alert systems for use by the fire and rescue services, as well as more generally about current and future innovation in systems for the protection of premises. Andy, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Well, I'm very familiar with SeaTech, and it's great to have you guys as our latest guests. So let's get straight into that's all right with you. I want to talk about SeaTech to start off with. What has SeaTech brought to market over the last couple of years? Oh, crikey. Um, well, we've been very busy. Um, I suppose the main things uh, are our new domestic systems. Um, 
We've got a system called Hush Active, which is a domestic grade C alarm system with uh, conventional devices. Grade C is, is, is um, according to BS5839 Part 6, is always considered to be better than a lower grade. So the main thing about this system is it's got a floor level test and hush controller. Fault monitoring is the main thing against uh, grade D. And it's got a simple interface if you um, want to connect it to a landlord system. Uh, so that's one of the main things we brought to market. We've also got our Hush Pro system, which is very similar to Active, but uses addressable devices. This is a real step up because this has introduced a new level of false alarm management. We've Basically, it's a complete CTEC innovation. We've invented two fire levels. Fire level one is almost certainly a false alarm and it doesn't get signalled outside the flat. Fire level two would be from, for instance, a heat detector in the lobby. That is a different alert tone and it's sent outside the flat. So it allows landlords to um, to be very confident that they're not going to hear about bits of burnt toast. But it also links to our cloud-based system where you can monitor and analyse data. So it's the forthcoming requirements for duty holders, people who are responsible for residential buildings, it'll, it'll be a great help to them. Anything else? Yes, um, EM54 for power supplies. We've got a whole new series of power supplies to the latest EV, e, uh, LVD standards, low voltage directed safety standards, uh, EN62368 part one. These are out there. So yes, we've been very busy. We have been busy, but if I can pry a little bit, can I ask what's next in your product pipeline? Well, we've recently got our XFP cast fire alarm system out there, fully available. And coming along very shortly is our ZFP, which is our big panel system, networkable panel system. That's completing certification. And that uses our own CAST protocol. Would you like me to tell you about CAST protocol? Yeah, please do share with our listeners. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, um, the main things about it are it's a 40-volt loop voltage, but the devices will work down to 18 volts. So this means you can have very long loops. 255 devices, multiple type codes. So uh, you know exactly what you're working with. You know, you know whether it's a sound or a sound bad and a couple of self-addressing options so you can either address it in via connected to the loop or you can use a handheld programmer distributed intelligence it allows it to work very very quickly batches of 16 devices send their data uh, simultaneously and they make the alarm decisions this this allows it to be very robust so very quick response times. Andy, another key thing for you is your new system you've got coming out to the BS8629. Can you tell us a bit more about that system, please? Obviously, because we've been doing domestic systems for the last few years, we've been keeping a very close eye on the Grenfell Tower Inquiry and the recommendations. And one of the recommendations that Grenfell Tower Inquiry made was that every domestic uh, high-rise in the country, including existing ones, should have a method of, evac of evacuation. So we obviously took notice of this and um, when BS8629 was being developed, we participated in the public comment stage and we've been working on our own version of a product called EvacAlert, which is in the final stages of production now, uh, of uh, prototyping now rather, and uh, we hope to have this in the autumn. Um, and it'll, co it'll cope with in a single panel up to 48 floors or uh, zones and be expandable to the tallest possible buildings. So next question I have for you is, Seek is 
the largest independent manufacturer of fire detection systems in the UK. And, you know, I, I know many of your staff and you've all been there a long, long time. There's a lot of you that have been there a long time. What do you put the longevity of people's careers to? Is it? Why do you think people stay with the company for as long as they do? Well, we're not, you know, we have our problems just like any other business. I think I think the benefits are that being a small business and, and being in charge of our own destiny, decisions are made very close to home. So even when they're not popular, we can... We can resolve what, when, whatever happens. Um, so, yes, and I think people are, are generally well-treated. Um, you know, we've got, a, we've got fabulous factory, as I'm sure you'll agree, good working conditions, and, uh, yeah, I think we look after them. Well, that's what I want to talk about next. You do have a fantastic facility there in, in Wigan that I visited many times. But right now, obviously, we're in the middle of a, a terrible pandemic and people are starting to get back to work. How has CTEC managed to cope under the current pandemic? Well, you know that our address is challenge way, and uh, it certainly has been a challenge. Um, it, it's, uh, we've, we've managed, we think, really well. Um, we've Obviously, we had to uh, use the furlough scheme for production staff and quite a lot of people to um, maintain the business in line with demand. But we've traded throughout and uh, we've concentrated on keeping stock levels up so that as uh, customer demand has come on, we've been able to supply it. And we're just managing the increase in business that started at the beginning of June and very carefully bringing people back on. All our salespeople, external salespeople are back at work and all our R&D people, uh, with, the, uh, with the exception of a couple of people who are, um, have health issues, are back at work. So, yes, we're, we're, we're as hopeful as anybody can be, I think. Sandy, I also know that CTEC offer training and you have some CPD courses. Are these now happening again? Are you starting to do face-to-face again or have you moved to digital? Why can you, what can you tell our listeners more about your training programme? Well, obviously, um, we join Zoom along with most of the rest of the world, uh, Microsoft Teams or Zoom, and we've been doing CPD and non-CPD training right the way through in groups or in one-to-ones, but we're actually reintroducing our in-house training for the 23rd of July. The, uh, as you know, we've got quite a lot of space, so we're able to maintain social distancing. I think the only downside is that our catering facilities, which are renowned, will not be open. Um, so we will be asking people to bring their buddies. So if people want to get in touch with CT to find out more about your products or your training, what's the best way to do so, Andy? It, the web, as ever, www.c-tec.com. And if you go to the contacts page, there is uh, a link to all our technical account managers and distribution account managers. Andy, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Dennis Davis of the Fire Sector Federation, Warren Spencer from Blackhurst Bud Solicitors and CTEC's Andy Scott for their excellent contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com.
We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is access your chosen platform and enter the term Fire Safety Matters into the search box. We'll see you next time.